Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there, Luke from Under Consultation. Now, there are a few audio issues at the start of this episode. Nothing major, but it is noticeable. We're really sorry about that. We don't know what happened, but don't worry, it's not there for the whole episode. As I said, we're not sure what happened, but anyway, enjoy the show. Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, getting to grips with my humongous possession. I am your other co-host. My name is Ash Bobberjob Versus. <laughs> uh, well, this episode aired on the 14th of January, 1992. Bill and Ted's bogus journey is still number one at the box office of the United Kingdom, and Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, slash These Are the Days of Our Lives, that forgotten double-A side, is number one. And this week of video games saw the release of Evander Holyfield's Real Deal Boxing for the Sega Mega Drive, John Madden 92 for the Super Nintendo in Japan, and Mega Man 4 for the NES. I played none of these games. <laughs> yeah, Mega Man 4 is like the only one I'm really aware of because my friend had it, but I didn't play it till years and years and years and years later, like talking teenage years when he dug out his, his Nintendo. And he was like, oh, these are the games I've got. And he had uh, DuckTales and he had <laughs> something else that I cannot remember uh, and Mega Man 4 it was the only Mega Man game that he had now do you know anyone that's ever claimed to have completed a Mega Man game personally no yeah I was going to say because if you do they're probably lying <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I can't beat Mega Man 2 it's the only one I've really tried to beat I can't beat it Mega Man games are games that I love in principle yeah, like, yeah I love yeah. the design I love the style of game I will pick one up. I have bought one. Um, the PlayStation Mega Man games. Is it Mega Man oh, X? X? Yeah, they did X4 onwards, I think. Yeah. Because I had a X7 for the PlayStation. I think that was probably the same one. With the blue cover. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I picked that up and I'm like, this is going to be great. And I played it and I took it out and I partexted it in shortly <laughs> afterwards because I'm like, it's a good game. I'm terrible. Yeah. I'm terrible at this game. 
Uh, well, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is still number one at the UK box office, but you and I, last week when we talked about this, failed to mention we've got a new Bill and Ted movie. Face the music. Oh, face the music, mate. A, a film that has been in the works now for what feels like 10 to 15, maybe even more years. It just feels like every interview that Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter have done for the last decade or so has been, so when's Bill and Ted 3 coming out? And they've always said, oh, dude, soon. Yeah, really soon. Really soon. <laughs> really soon. I'm trying to remember if it was Empire Magazine or SFX Magazine used to have the development hell section. Mm. And I remember when I first started reading those magazines, <laughs> Bill and Ted 3 was in development hell. It is one of the quintessential development hell movies. It's only recently gained the title Face of Music with the announcement of the production of this one. But I think, didn't we have Bill and Ted go to hell or something? Yeah. And Face the Music is the name I think I've always heard attached to, at least when they announced it like a couple of years ago. I think that was when, or when they said, we've now finished a new draft of it. And that's when it's called Face the Music. And they said, it's set, you know, modern day, Bill and Ted still haven't written the song that's going to save the world. And now they have to sit there and, and struggle to find out why haven't we saved the world yet? I was incredibly grateful to hear that they're going, okay, we're setting it modern day and essentially we're giving them their midlife crisis. Yeah. Because I'm like, this is great because I was a teenager for a Bogus Journey and now I'm in my late 30s. So they will be speaking to me once again relevantly because here I am approaching 40 and I'm just like, oh, I wonder where my midlife crisis will hit. What will I do? And in 2020, we've got a new Bill and Ted movie and a new Ghostbusters movie. The 80s live again. We'll probably be having coal miner strikes as well to go with it. <laughs> Well, we've heard for the basic set of news, Bash. What were the magazines telling us? Well, last time we looked at Me Machines and a news article about the Super Nintendo. Now, Me Machines went on to be more associated with Sega as it became Me, Me Machine Sega. Sega. So to flip it on its head, we're now looking at the January issue of Computer and Video Games, where one of their leading news articles was on the Mega CD. Oh man, I wanted a Mega CD so bad. So bad that I want a Mega CD. Well, their opening paragraph shows that you were not alone as it exclaims in red letters, hot, hot, hot. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've seen those same letters in neon in Soho. Oh yeah, yeah, And yeah. Uh, the phones have been ringing off the hook at the CVG office with calls from would-be Mega CD owners desperate for all the latest on the new machine. What can it do? Does it make the Mega Drive better than the Famicom? No. <laughs> they don't say that. That's me. I was going to say, that's a very blunt answer. they be like, no, you idiot. Of course it doesn't. That's me editorialising. Apologies, Mega CD fans. <laughs> How much will it cost? When can I get one? The list of questions goes on and on. Well, actually, no, those are mostly important ones. Yeah, yeah. But they give a rundown of the machine, including such questions as, what's the CD-ROM? What was the CD-ROM? <laughs> well, a CD-ROM is a CD with ROM. Yeah. There we go. Okay, the, so there the was like a specific from, one, right? No, no, <laughs> the character from Deep Space Nine. That's it, a CD <laughs> with the ROM. They talk about how it was first seen at the Tokyo Toy Show, uh, Black Box, Mega Drive sits on top... And they admit it's not the first attempt at a CD-ROM-based console because, of course, that particular honour went to the PC Engine mm -hmm. with the uh, PC Engine CD or Turbo Graphics... Turbo Graphics uh, 16 CD, CD, CD yeah. yeah, yeah. And they say that that was a little bit of a lame horse which couldn't do much more than give you the same old games with CD-quality music and a little bit of a fancy full-motion video or animated intro. But if what we've heard is anything to go by, the Mega CD is all set to shape the future of Mega Drive gaming well into the 90s. And 
I mean, obviously, I think we know with the power of hindsight that's very much not the case. Paul Rand, who wrote this article, shame. <laughs> shame on you. But in fairness to them, because I wonder if you, you're being fed that information by the people from um, Sega of America who were, like, really, really gunning for this. This is all in, like, Blake Harris's book. Tom Kalinske's whole plan for the Mega Drive was that it was going to be the Sega console in towards like the end of the year he didn't want to push ahead with the sega saturn because he was like the mega drive or the, the genesis in america is still selling so well why would we release another console particularly one that's not backwards compatible we should put more focus into the mega cd and we'll just have the sega genesis will be our console up until the end of the uh, the, the decades it does make you wonder where would gaming be now if there hadn't been that generational push so if sega hadn't pushed forward with the mega cd and then almost to the saturn and then sony and nintendo hadn't had their bit of a to-do which caused the divergence and suddenly we had the playstation then we had the nintendo 64 and it, it we had a race it was like a space race but for children's money. <laughs> Sorry, parents for money. parents' money, yeah. And on paper, the Mega CD was so much more than the PC Engine CD because you had the original console. This box that sat underneath wasn't just a glorified CD player. It had an extra processor. It had extra gubbins. It had extra functionality. It had weird bridging cables that went between the two. It was treating the Mega Drive almost like a component stereo system where you were adding functionality. It wasn't necessary, but it was opening up new worlds to do so. Yeah, completely. It was a console that I really, really wanted because I think I'd bought into like, you know, when you see features about it or you read about it in magazines like this or in Sonic the Comic, uh, which is hit stores next year, I think it comes out on British shores, that I just wanted to get my hands on one because I loved my Mega Drive so much. I wanted more Mega Drive stuff for it. Plus, how am I, I going to get to play Sonic CD or Batman Returns, an actually good Batman Returns game as opposed to the other one we got? I don't know. The Super Nintendo Batman Returns game was actually pretty good. That game's great, but I had a Mega Drive, so I couldn't play that one. Well, that's your fault. <laughs> this article that I'm looking at has definitely been fed from the Sega hype machine because also they dunk on the PC Engine quite spectacularly. <laughs> they say that if you've ever seen the PC Engine in action, you'll notice it takes ages to load because the engine has to clear out the last stage before booting the next. Sometimes it takes longer than if you used floppy disks. Ooh, yeah. slam. Yeah, I know. Clever old Sega have found a way around it by building in six megabits of RAM. That's nothing. <laughs> Allowing data to be held in the machine while the player is battling away, ready to cross over to the main memory at the speed of light when it's time to do so. Speed of light, eh? It still took a dog's age to load. I was going to say. We still have loading time issues for the majority of games. Mm -hmm. And I think it hasn't got any better. In some cases, it's gotten worse, but we've just acclimatised to it. It took a while. It took a couple of generations. It wasn't until, I think, the PS2, that era, yeah. that, that we got used to it as gamers. But at that point, we're just like, okay, so I used to be able to leap between worlds in Mario as long as it took for the transitional graphics to happen. Now, I've maybe got time to quickly look at Twitter on my phone. Yeah. Or, you know scratch my nether regions or have a sip of the cup of tea or those, all of the above but those loading screens give you such helpful hints and remind you what the controls are i like to think that those loading screens are there for when you haven't played a game for four months and you pick it up and go like god damn how'd you play this game again and then just go press square to do this you press triangle to do this and you're like oh yeah okay now i remember 
The one thing distinctly lacking from this news article, however, is actual talk of the games. Well, yeah, because it felt like... So I remember Sonic the Hedgehog, the podcast, have been talking about this recently. They're reviewing every issue of Sonic the Comic, which is the UK exclusive um, Sonic and Sega comic. Hello, Editor Luke again. I just said Sonic the Hedgehog, the podcast, when I, of course, meant Sonic the Comic, the podcast. I'm an idiot. Please look up their show. It's Ace. And there, like that came out in 1993. And at that point, there were... There were only five games, I think, available for it because they didn't do a top ten for Mega CD games. They just did the top five. So even, like, I know we're, you know, still waiting for this machine to come out, but the games were very, very, like, they were drip-fed to us. Because if it wasn't Sonic CD or Night Trap, it was Sherlock Home Adventures, or it was a different Sherlock Home games, or it was the Flowers of Robert Maplethorpe, and it was just a lot of CD-ROM interactive games as opposed to game games. Yeah, it was stuff that we might also be seeing on, like, the CDI, because the Philips CDI was around at the time, and that was doing a lot of stuff full motion video, including things like Mad Dog McCree that we saw last That's week. That's right, yeah. Wing Commander. Wing Commander. Oh, no, I will not hear a word <laughs> said against Wing Commander. Wing I was Com- going to say a bad thing against Wing I was Commander. Say, Wing Commander 3 and 4, top games, Mark Hamill. Oh, absolutely. But they're talking about games hypothetically here. They're saying this console could handle large-scale sprite scaling like Pit Fighter. <laughs> which we're going to see in this episode. Yeah, I know. We'll definitely get to that a bit later. <laughs> and they're saying that there's no reason why top titles like Radmobile, G-Lock, Power Drift, and any other Sega 3D arcade spectacular shouldn't make it onto the Mega CD. Spoilers, a lot of them didn't. No. Thank you, great. Thank you very much. Thank you and welcome to Games Master, TV's only show devoted solely to video games. So if the sentence, Mario got stomped by a green Cooper paratrooper makes any sense to you, you're tuned to the right church. If it doesn't, and you're one of those people who think Game Boy is a young scout doing bobber jobs, then watch on and erase that ignorance. Well, let's dive into this episode of Games Master, um, where Dominic Diamond tells us that it is TV's only show devoted to video games, makes a nice little Mario reference, and says that... Uh, uh, but if you think the Game Boy is a young scout doing bobber jobs, this is not the show for you. Took me right back. I was a young scout. I did bobber job week. We I to- don't remember bobber job weeks. I was a scout, but I don't know. When he said this, I was like, this must be a reference that I do not either know or remember. I... Bobber job was the whole idea that you'd be raising money either for charity, local charities, or for the scout hut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was things like packing groceries at the supermarket. Or, as we often did, uh, sponsored rubbish pickups, Mm -hmm. which you would never get children under 10 doing nowadays because it's like, oh, look, broken glass. We encountered broken glass, (laughs) you know, bits of rusty metal, you know, free tetanus shots. It was great. (laughs) We did shoe shines. Wow. Yeah, I know. That would not work today because of canvas shoes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know if I've just missed out on it, but there was felt like a distinct lack of dick jokes in this opening paragraph. I made that exact same observation. They felt like they were rationing them. Maybe after the first taping session, they broke for lunch. Because I, I get the feeling going by the repetition of some of the commentators they had that, you know, they did two sessions in a day. Yeah. And that they were on lunch, they were in the green room at the craft table services, looking at the pineapple chunks and bits of ham. And someone came down from the gallery and went, Dominic, these are kids. Can we ease up on the wanking jokes a bit? Just a little bit, just, just a smidgen. Uh, totally, because this is not a dickless joke episode. 
they save some big ones for later. Exactly. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. But whereas, like, the first one... <laughs> and we're 12 again. There we go. Yeah. But the first one felt like it was firing in all cylinders with dick jokes. It was just like, it, he'd make a dick joke at the start, and then we're like, oh, I haven't made a dick joke in ages. Better make another one right now. That first episode was the television equivalent of that gif of the woman having the, all the hot dogs fired <laughs> into Lindsay her Ellis. face. Yeah, yeah. And, and this episode was more like um, Ramsay Bolton from Game of Thrones, just waving a single sausage around a bit. Well, they did say as well, uh, last week, the episode ended off with Dominic Diamond saying that more challenges were going to be coming because all three people won last week, which you and I said, what a great way to start off with three winners to make you be like, hey, anyone could do this. You could do this. But it felt like they needed to step this up. And I felt like they really stepped it up on this episode. The first Sonic challenge, the lad increases the challenge, even though it's actually a pretty difficult task to begin with. And then you the, the Lemmings one we get at the end of the episode, it really is a one bad move and you're done. Yeah. Like you, ha you had to nail that game perfectly in order to complete that challenge. But first up, let's hear from Games Master on what our first challenge is. Greetings, and I'd like to take this opportunity to say how delighted I am to see you again. If you enjoyed last week's challenge, I think you'll find tonight's three little jaunts an absolute hoot. First off the starting box, an endearing young fellow by the name of Sonic the Hedgehog. Your task? You have two minutes to collect 150 rings or more on the second level of an area known as the Green Hill Zone. These rings are dotted around a tropical landscape plagued with all manners of hostile creatures and booby traps, every one of them intent on thwarting young Sonic's progress. And beware, the slightest collision will cause you to lose all your rings and the challenge will be over. So, two minutes, 150 rings or more. Happy hunting. So, we've got two minutes to collect 150 rings on Act 2 of the Green Hill Zone. Now, you can tell some of these segments were pre-taped because otherwise <laughs> he'd have adjusted for the 160. <laughs> As a kid, this was an odd challenge to watch because I really didn't have much access to Sonic. Mm. A couple of school friends, they had it. But when we went round after school, play Mega Drive for a bit, play Sonic, Fish Fingers and be baked beans for tea and then go home and that was it so the concept of doing this kind of let's try and collect as many rings as possible you know that, that it was trying to get as much of the game in as possible it was like how far can i get before you know the Finder's crispy pancakes are burnt. <laughs> and it's an interesting one as well, because like, so this would have been at the time when I had my Mega Drive and I had my copy of Sonic 1. So I must have, I don't fully remember doing this, but I must have attempted to do this after watching this show to see if I could do it. Because they point out that the, the task is to get 150 rings and there are only 163 rings in the entire level some of which we you know find out are behind hidden areas or hidden worlds as game master Mile called it in the last episode fizzy rings fizzy rings you don't want to find the fizzy rings in the hidden world because our lad comes out alex very from stanmore and he ups the challenge to 160 rings yeah he's kind of like well you know i've got to show i'm the best he does, yeah. He's just like, I want to show that I'm the master of this game. There's no problem to do it in two minutes. So yeah, there are 163 rings in this entire board, and he wants to get 160 of them and finish the game. And as we saw in Games Master's preview, you could easily hit one of the badniks and you're, you're scuppered. 
So if you if you get hit, you're knackered. You are pretty much. Now, Alex Very, he's a little bit of a ringer in this because he's a challenger. He auditioned or stepped forward for this, much as many others did. He does come from a family with some performing background. I think his um, father was an actor on some level and he had an older brother that was as well. He'd done some child acting himself. Uh, I haven't looked up what. Let's assume Grange Hill. <laughs> Just for argument's sake. Yeah. This was not the end of his gaming career. Far from it. Because as Games Master became more successful competitors appeared we had bad influence that came about on itv Indeed, yeah and on sky one we had games world the competitor yes which i knew nothing about because i didn't have sky but he was on it he was one of the videators which wow. is a is a term that i only recently learned and i'm just assuming it's because they wanted a video game version of gladiators. gladiators yeah yeah young alex very soon became big boy barry wow that's an ominous name to give a Isn't kid it just yeah and uh, he was there throughout the runner games world and his career with video games outlasted the show as he then went on to work for mad cats uk wow but this this was where it all began was on games master this with this first challenge where he not only went on one of the first episodes of the show but went I see your challenge, and I raise the stakes. I'm going to raise the stakes. There are only 163 rings. I'm going to get 160. To, if you'll excuse the pun, this was the genesis of Big Boy Barry. No, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> but you said, like, just before we wanted to record this, because I didn't know this, but this is our first, well, we think this is the first instance we know of a challenge being re-recorded. As we've been preparing for this show, I've been doing my research, I've been reading various articles, interviews with Dominic, interviews with various other people involved, various retrospectives, and I found at least two separate occasions where they mentioned that this challenge took multiple takes. Wow. Because Do we know how many takes, or is it just, just multiple? Uh, I saw... One say multiple, another say this was the second attempt that we saw. So I wonder then if, because we see some clips in the Games Master's preamble where he's talking about like, here's the challenge, don't run into a bad nick, if that was one of his original takes. Hello, Editor Luke again. Since we recorded this episode, Big Boy Barry has done an interview with Retro Gamer where they talk about this challenge. He said that he applied to originally just be in the audience, but were then asked if they play games and got selected to feature as a contestant. Alex said that they set the challenge at 150 rings and he was given a month to prepare, but it wasn't his choice to up the stakes. Here's the rest of the quote from Alex. A week before filming, they phoned me to see how I was doing and I said I was up to 160 rings. Then I got to the show, Dominic Diamond said, so you've asked to increase the challenge to 160 rings, eh? He also confirms Ash's suspicion that this was a retake, telling Retro Gamer that he died right away on his first go with no rings, and the director let him have a second chance. He calls it a sliding doors moment for his gaming career. Anyway, that's enough from me. Now back to the original recording. It could be. It could absolutely be. Or they must have given the kids chances to do dry runs before they went out in front of the audience. Yeah. They probably take those. Yeah, totally. They yeah. I mean, not only to give them the B-roll footage they need for the Games Master issuing the challenge, but also just to make sure the capture hardware was working right, because... If that doesn't work. 
If that doesn't work, you're done, you're scuppered. And joining me in the pulpit is a man who knows more than most about this machine, Sega Power Magazine's deputy editor, Neil West. Neil, welcome to Games Master. Thanks, Dominic. Now, we have a very cocky young competitor here. What advice could you give him? <laughs> Certainly do. 150 is tough enough, but 160. Um, basically, um, you can watch through this level very quickly, but you'd miss the rings. There are some very tricky stages, so pick up an invincibility shield before you take them on. That's my advice. Well, we've got uh, Sega Power's Neil West in the guest commentator booth, and uh, Dominic Diamond calls uh, Alex Very a cocky young competitor, with Neil giving the very, very good advice, get yourself an invisibility shield as quickly as you can. Absolutely. I mean, that's just a golden rule for any Sonic. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say Alex has got some very good control of his Sonic character. There's a moment right at the start when he does a jump and you can see him wiggle back and forth because he's going to hit a, uh, a bad nick because he's just slightly mistimed it. So he has got some good control of here and he gets into the secret area to get the uh, 20 fizzy rings and a shield, um, grabs himself an extra life. And I thought at this point, I was like, he's missed a load there. There was a, he just jumped straight past them. No, no, no. Alex knew that he'd done that. He knew what he was doing. He went back and got those rings. And I was like, I genuinely, I was on the edge of my seat for this challenge. This was a point where he also got the um, the invincibility thing. He did it, yes. The Spangle Sherbet Dam, <laughs> as Dominic Diamond called it. Now that, for me... That's what they are. They're Spangle Sherbet Dabbers. <laughs> so he's got one minute left and he got 114 rings. He's taken all the easy ones, Neil points out to us. Now he's got to find all of the hidden ones that are throughout the level. That genuinely, that one line, I was like, like oh my God, is he going to find them? He's got a lot to find. He has a lot to find with not a lot of time. But the one advantage, I guess, of Sonic, and particularly those hidden areas, is their high ring density. Mm. Much like the coin areas and down the pipes in Mario, you find one of those, you set your quids in. If you get a fizzy ring. If you get a fizzy ring. It's 10. <laughs> if you get a fizzy ring, consult a physician. <laughs> He's got 136 rings with 35 seconds to go. Come on, mate. He gets to the 150. He would have been the challenge. He gets 10, makes it through to the end I thought it was awesome 23 seconds to spare I had a whale of a time with that uh, that challenge I wonder if he was told not to go through the bonus ring <laughs> he does look like he went for it he was like oh no I've missed it now oh, oh well it doesn't matter yeah but no, it was a great challenge, and I confess I was all in for this until I did discover it's like this was the second take, and I'm like, you're a sham. Yeah, it's because all my notes are written pre knowledge. So I'm like, dude, did it first time round. To be honest, everything we see on television is fake to some degree. Yeah. And so, legitimately, the fact that he did that, even on two takes, particularly like only three rings away from the maximum. Yeah. That's, that's something. That's something pretty damn incredible. Alex, you had 23 seconds to spare. You made it look easy. Was there ever any doubt in your mind? Yeah, there was a couple of times because the only way I could get 160 rings was to bash through the wall, and I'm not very good at that. <laughs> I thought I was going to miss it up. Okay, well, as one of our games playing champions, you win the prize that sits lovingly on anyone's mantelpiece, the Golden Games Master Joystick. Afterwards, Alex says that the only way to get all the rings was to get through that wall, which is not usually very good at the one where you've got to, you get the, the speed shoes and you go back and you do a spin dash. Dominic Diamond was blown away by this uh oh my like the as which is the dominic diamond phrase that he uses a lot within this show and he gets his joystick and again no dick jokes oh no wait there it is because as he's walking away dominic diamond says and now while alex gets to grips with this humongous possession that he's going to get to grips with this humongous possession as dick jokes go it wasn't top tier it was kind of just like it was a softball oh totally it was it was just a softball just throwing it out there letting it settle and seeing what the what the response was <laughs> if the earpiece started going 
lockdown. <laughs> but because we hadn't had any up until this point, I was grabbing hold of anything I could. <laughs> so to speak. So to speak. <laughs> this week, oil your deltoids and unsheathe your weapons as we look at beat-em-ups. First up, on the Amiga, the Bruce Lees of the future give a hearty ki in First Samurai. <laughs> It looks very Chinese takeaway, lots of uh, lotus trees and uh, bamboo furniture. But uh, underneath all this uh, colorful exterior, there's um, a real uh, good game. It um, features some beautiful graphics, brilliant sampled sound effects, bits of Handel's Messiah thrown in for good measure. I think the first Samurai deserves a thumbs up because it's a great game with plenty to do and beat up. All right, let's jump into the reviews for this week, and it's beat-em-up week. First up, we have got uh, First Samurai on the Amiga, a game I don't know. I don't think I've ever, I've never seen before until this show. I've never played this game, but I remember this game appearing on this show oh, and cool. then seeing reviews of it, I think, in computer and video games. And it was one of many games that made me really want an Amiga. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Amiga games just looked kind of a bit sexy and more sophisticated than yeah. a lot. They, oh. they had a very different art style to even games that had the kind of similar color palettes and whatnot on the Mega Drive or the Super Nintendo. There was just something about... Amiga games that just look great. And this game looks great. Did yeah. it have a Super Nintendo port in the end? Oh, did it? Yeah, it oh, did. Oh, cool. And apparently, I mean, they loved it. They gave it 90%. Although I will say, Dave McCandles from Zero Magazine seemed less keen on the game either he wasn't a fan or he hadn't played it because his only comments on this are he calls it a Chinese takeaway of a game with lotus trees and bamboo furniture and then goes, it's a good game <laughs> I've, I've, I have my notes for this said um, well a couple of things one is calling it a Chinese takeaway game when it's literally called Samurai <laughs> is horrendous cultural insensitivity <laughs> but also that just whole he says that beneath all this there's a real Good game. Good game. There is a lip smack. <laughs> yeah. There is a definitive lip smack, as well as the tumbleweed and the awkward silence. <laughs> well, thank me, Frank O'Connor from CBG is there to say that it's got brilliant um, sample sound effects, although based on the clip that I heard, I beg to bloody differ. Uh, and then we hey, get different standards in 1991. <laughs> it was. A guy could repeatedly going, yeah, ah. yeah. That's brilliant sampled sound. And then Matt Glue, who doesn't have a magazine attached to him, which makes me think he's someone from the audience or from the office, uh, just said that it's a great game it gets 90% all around good reviews including Frank's it's a good game it's a good game it's a, it's a good game <laughs> a good game no that review score does kind of tally with what I've seen elsewhere it was quite well respected it looks fun yeah it does it's the fact that it's out there for the Super Nintendo also makes me even more keen to just go back slap it in an emulator yeah <laughs> and just, just give it a bit of a blast. See what it, see what's out there. See what it's doing. It's all right. We won't tell Reggie. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I could use the Amiga emulator. Literally, no one will care at that point. Next, also on the Amiga, we enter the murky underworld of Pit Fighter. Three butch contestants trade below the belt action in an orgy of unrestrained violence. Pit Fighter's um, less of a, a beat 'em up, more of a sort of kick living crap out of everybody. I'm up. It's boring, you don't have that many moves. The computer tends to decide what you're going to do next. It's not so much um, counter-attacking your opponent, 
this move. It's more just mindly stabbing the fire button and wiggling the joystick seems to be just as effective. <laughs> well, speaking of Amiga, but less talking of good games, it is the aforementioned Pit Fighter. Oof, this game is no good. I first encountered this game in the arcade, in oh, the annual Mop Fair arcade. It was 20p ago, and it was new at the time, and therefore, because also it looked different because it was that digitized, digitized graphics. Acting, yeah. And it was 20p ago, you could have three players. Here was Bobbins, it was awful. Oh, it's not a good game at it's all. It's not, and then, for some reason, possibly I'm a glutton for punishment, I got it for the Amstrad CPC 464. Whoa. Now you you imagine that game, but take away the cool looking graphics, and that's what the Amstrad version was. And if the arcade version was wonky controls, this was just wonky. There were no controls, and the contrast between the sprites was non-existent. That's a bold port. It's a bold, yeah, it's a bold port. It says a lot when they managed to port that, or they attempted to port that and released it. Street Fighter 2 for the Amstrad CPC was vaporware. <laughs> they gave up. <laughs> They just never did it. Well, I mean, this doesn't get very good reviews from our lads here. They uh, call it boring. They say the computer does all the work for you. And it gets, oof, 59%. That is, if there is a, like, a badge of, a, of disapproval, it is a 59% rating on an episode of Games Master. You, if you can't get 60, I mean, what are you even doing? You've not even tried. Finally, pulsating pixels of monochrome muscle on the Game Boy with Double Dragon 2. Cute. Safe. Nice. Cool. You walk along and you smack people in the teeth and that's about it. And that's quite good fun as it turns out. I loved Double Dragon 2 on the Game Boy. It was the first Double Dragon game I played and it was one I got second hand and it was just the game, no box, no instruction manual. Didn't matter. I picked it up. I loved it. I love scrolling beat-em-ups and that game felt big on the Game Boy because yeah, it had yeah. meaty looking characters. They were nicely scaled down. Um, what was the exact description we had? <laughs> From Dave McCandles. From Dave, Dave McCandles. <laughs> Cute, safe, nice, nice cool. <laughs> it's like he's doing word association. This man gives zero Fs in these reviews. <laughs> he really doesn't. But the thing is, it is. It's all of those things. It is cute. The graphics are really cute and nicely done. Even the little Jason Voorhees ripoff you see. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of cute. It is safe. It's a safe, comfortable port. I personally believe it deserved higher than the score it got, but I'm like, that's a respectable score. Yeah, I mean, it's maybe I've not played the the Game Boy port of the game, and my 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 general feeling on Game Boy ports usually are they're the lesser version of what the NES would get. And I should know because I had a Game Boy, and I would get a lot of those NES ports that were mostly bobbins. But I'd be I'd be curious to give this one a go because I do like myself a Double Dragon. I love myself a scrolling beat 'em up, and if it is cute, safe, nice, and cool, then I'm all in for it. I think Frank's got. I mean, a that's nice... your nickname. <laughs> <laughs> Frank has got a, a nice review of this one. He just says the game is essentially smacking people in the teeth, and that's good fun. <laughs> Words to live by. <laughs> they get seventy percent, which you feel is slightly unfair. I would have given it an eighty. I'd have 75 to 80. I think it was in that bracket. And it's still, it, it's not Pit Fighter. So if there's one <laughs> thing we can take away from this entire review section, it's not Pit Fighter. It's and now for this week's hardware feature. 
Sometimes all there is between gaming success and failure is the power of your handpiece. Tonight we look at three of the latest gimmicks which may just turn you from a limp joystick fiddler into a gargantuan games player. But now we move on and suddenly Pit Fighter is not the most embarrassing thing <laughs> in this section. Yeah, these are... Alright, so if you weren't around for this period of gaming, video game companies bloody love a peripheral. Like, they loved releasing any old bobbins and be like, you could play the game with your eyelids. <laughs> now buy us 60 quid for it. If you were one of the people that looked at Guitar Hero and Rock Band and went, oh, that plastic tosh, <laughs> what's games coming to? Go back, look at this, reconsider your opinions because at least those things worked. <laughs> <laughs> Stop the Power Glove, a futuristic gauntlet that translates hand and arm movements into on-screen action. First of all, you have to enter in specific program code for the game you're about to play. This game here is Top Gun and the program code is number three, so I'm now entering program three. If I pull up on my hand, the, the plane goes down. If I push forward with my hand, the plane goes up. Small movements to the left bring the plane round, banking bank to the left and uh, the same with the right. When I want to fire my missiles, I simply press my index finger. That's so. The glove's pretty good to use. It feels like you're more in the game and you do get a sweat using it. Although we do start off with an absolute belter because it is all about like um, peripherals. We get do uh, Dominic Diamond dick joke, where is it all about the power of your hand piece? Well, hey, but we kick things off. Floppy joystick. Yep, and we get things off with an absolute belter, the power glove. Made famous by the uh, 1989 classic movie, The Wizards, with the immortal line, I love the power glove. It's so bad. I love the power glove. It's so bad. It so was. <laughs> One thing I will make a recommendation for is uh, The Gaming Historian has a 30-minute yes. video on the origins, the development, and the devolution Mm. of the power glove because if the power glove had been released as it was originally designed as a prototype i think it would have changed video game controls it would have also cost about 500 dollars. yeah because it was a very very complicated piece of equipment involving air bladders and light tubes and god knows what else but it was a it was a massive technological leap and something which i think in some ways we still don't have an equivalent of Today, we have motion sensors that can detect hand movements and limb movements, but this kind of digit sensory thing, we're not, we're not there. We never went down that avenue, possibly because the power glove bombed. Yeah, it really did bomb. Although I was actually surprised to see that it only cost 50 quid. I actually thought it was going to cost way more than that. Yeah, no, it wasn't the most expensive peripheral they cover in this section. It really isn't, no. And the thing about the Power Glove, it had limited supporting games. You had to, like, program in a number to get it to work with a certain game. In this one, they showed a guy in a very unconvincing shirt uh, playing Top Gun. And he's like, and if I tilt my hand up, plane goes down. Yep. And goes up, plane goes down. <laughs> and then left and right and... There were games I think they could have used to better demonstrate it, but by the by, that's what it was. The image of the Power Glove has had a more lasting impact than the actual Power Glove itself. Yes, we've got the wizard and how it was featured in there. It's so bad. Also, Captain N and the Games Master. I was going to say, Captain N, the Games Master. But then we fast forward 25 years, and this little independent Canadian horror movie comes out called Turbo Kid. Turbo Kid, absolutely. That's got Power Glove written all over it. Yep. And... 
we have YouTubers now doing 30 minute retrospective videos or putting um, Oyster card or contactless Barclay cards into their power <laughs> glove. It's had a lasting legacy as big as some of the consoles at the time, but without the burden of actually having to be any good. <laughs> Next, use your feet as well as your fingers with the QuickJoy foot pedal. You can set through a control on the foot pedal and the buttons on the foot pedal to correspond to the different buttons on the joystick. It was good for the car racing game um, and I should think it would be good for, say, a beat-em-up game where you have to kick. But I don't know whether it would be good for puzzle games. I don't think our next peripheral had the had the same success. We've got the Quick Joy foot pedal because why would you just want to play games with your hands? It's like a baby's toy, as that kid from Back to the Future Part Two would tell us later on in life. When you can play with your feet as well as your hands. Weirdly, I think five years later, this would have been a much bigger peripheral. Because, oh yeah. Yeah, because we'd entered the realm of higher quality racing games. Mm, yes, Started yeah, yeah. to have more things like more MechWarrior type games, more 3D games, games that might require more complicated controls. But at this time, you could get racing steering wheels, but not many games really required them. No, and actually, like the lad that's playing this, who's wearing a very nice shirt and jumper combination, um, says that he thinks it works best for beat-em-ups, which I kind of get because you can like you can program your kicks to be the feet, and if you want to create like a bit more of an immersive experience, I guess that that kind of works. But it doesn't work for puzzle games. Like it would be awful if you were trying to play Puzzle Bubble with this. I want to play Tetris with this. Now. <laughs> I see. I reckon Tetris could actually work because you'd need three buttons realistically for Tetris. Rotate left, rotate right, <laughs> yep. and shoot Drop, down. Yeah. Drop down, yeah. And finally, Terence Conran's favourite, the Sega Action Chair. The idea is just to move about in, in the seat as you would move the joystick up and down, left, right and push the buttons. You can get very physically involved in the game and it feels like you're jumping about and practically everything instead of just moving your hand about pressing the button. If you'd like any more info on these joysticks or anything else in the programme, you can call the Games Master Club. The number to phone will be given at the end of the show. Uh, and lastly, the Sega Action Share. What the hell was this? This was literally someone going, take this, sit on it and swivel because that's literally all you could do. It was a servo-less kind of motion chair. Yeah, it's like a big hammock, and it essentially has all of the like all of the functionality of the power glove, but you're doing it with your entire body instead. So if you were to do Top Gun, you would throw yourself back to make the plane go down, or throw yourself down to make the plane go up. In an arcade, this sort of thing is not unusual. Even back then, you would have things like Afterburner. Yep. Uh, there were some actual great, more recent arcade machines like to today, um, including, again, I think another Afterburner <laughs> game, Afterburner DX or whatever it was. There was the F-Zero GX. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I've played one of those, and it's great because you do. You swing around, and you're back and forth, and it's really immersive. But this is essentially a bunch of scaffold tube and, as you pointed out, a hammock. In your living room. Well, that's the thing as well with this afterburners, the screen's moving around with you as well. Yeah. So you're always looking at the screen and sort of moving, you know, rocking back and forth. This, your TV is stationary. So if you move, you're like, no, I can't see the TV. Yeah. And, but this kid really loved it. Mm. Now, did you get the reference that Dominic Diamond made in this? I didn't. I was just, I think I was too aghast at the fact that that cost a hundred quid. 
because right at the beginning of this piece, Dominic Diamond says that it would be a chair that Kevin Conran would be proud of. Do you know who Kevin Conran is? Name does not ring a bell. He's a designer, um, a raconteur, a restauranteur. He's still alive at 88, but he also opened with his wife the first ever Habitat store. Really? Yeah. Well, I tell you what, it's amazing the amount of useless information I've got in my head, <laughs> particularly when I look stuff like this up specifically for the purpose of this podcast. <laughs> Pub quizzes are just getting easier every day. Um, I don't know anyone who owns um, any of these peripherals. Um, I would love to meet someone who had a Sega action chair, though, and just ask them, did it work? Was it worth the money that you paid for it? Or your parents paid for it? See, the Sega Action Chair, if you paired it with something like the foot pedals and you had a bit of an immersive racing game thing going on there, or Top Gun, yeah, because then I'm sure airplanes must have some form of foot pedal. I'd imagine so. Do they have like clutches and brakes and, and whatnot? Air brakes. Yeah, Air brakes. Totally, yeah, yeah. Now it's time for our celebrity challenge, so let's head on over to Games Master and see what we're playing. Back so soon? After the whimsical antics of Sonic the Hedgehog, I thought it was about time we tested your physical might. The second challenge is on Sonic Blastman. A megalithic meteorite is careering toward the Earth. You have three punches to destroy it and save the planet, a truly Herculean task. The person who records the highest score is the winner. So, roll up your sleeves, and remember that the fate of mankind is at the mercy of your fists. I'll be honest, I originally wrote this title down wrong. I wrote down it was called Sonic Blaster, and then I found out it's called Sonic Blast Man. I'm fairly certain there is also a game called Sonic Blaster. Which is where I might have got confused, but I did originally write that down. It was only until I went onto Wikipedia later, I was like, oh, Sonic Blast Man, I've written this down wrong. Uh, but it's an arcade game. You've seen them around sort of your, your arcades, and they're still there in our case to this day really which is essentially you punch the thing dead hard and however hard you hit it determines the amount of points and you've got to try and break the thing that's on screen this is essentially an electronic version of one of the oldest carny sideshows the test of strength you either do the arm wrestling or the hammer and the pressure thing and the bell this is what this is except it's automated and there's less chance of it being rigged. The My only reference for these, really, has actually come from a, a later portion of my life when I was in a Weatherspoons for a work Christmas party. And they had one of these in the, like, essentially in the middle of a dance floor area in a, in a uh, not a Weatherspoons, sorry, a walkabout. And I was going to say, this, that, feels, <laughs> that does feel more walkabout. It's very more walkabout than Weatherspoons. Um, you get yourself a pint of pint with it as well. Um, <laughs> in a walkabout. But it was just surrounded by proper alpha male type lads ripping up their shirts and being like, oh, who's all that, you and I? And I've instantly taken a disliking to it. And so when this started, I was like, I'm just not going to like the person who's playing this game because I'm going to just assume they're going to be one of these types of lads. Competitors for this unique challenge, we scoured the arcades and gyms nationwide and came up with a perfect competition. British Sonic Blastman champion Paul Turner against one of the most fearsome punches of world boxing, former British heavyweight champion Gary Mason. Uh, but Dominic Diamond says they've scoured the arcades and the gyms for this and they found the Sonic Blast champion Paul Turner and he's going to be taking on former British heavyweight champion Gary Mason. Gary Mason is a person that comes into this with a very, very impressive fight record. Oh yeah. At this point, I think 36 fights... 
35-1, one loss. The one loss was to Lennox Lewis. Yeah. And essentially, it was by referee stoppage in the seventh round. And primarily, the reason he hadn't had any fights after that is because it aggravated an injury with a detached retina. Yes. And that spelt an end to his fight career for a number of years. And there's a couple of references he makes during this entire segment, which I just find really sad. Because yeah. you can tell that, you know, the loss to Lennox Lewis had only been at this point four or five months previously. Yeah, he got beat on uh, March 6th, 1991 uh, to Lennox Lewis. So it was like just under a year ago. Well, no, because technically this was filmed in like October. Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. You're right. It was yeah. October, November. No, you're so, right. so, yeah, it was super fresh in his mind. And, and he's like, I was fighting <sighs> Lennox Lewis. Now I'm in a disused church, surrounded by children. When he says, spoilers, he loses this, but when he says, losing has become a habit for me these days, my heart broke for him. I wanted to give him a hug. Oh, oh, so, so sad. Uh, Tragically, he's no longer with us either. Uh, He died in January 2011, being hit by a van in Saudi Lane, South Wallington, South London, while cycling. Yeah, that's my neck of the woods, and uh, down in South London, and... Sadly, it also looks while the driver was arrested for reckless driving, it was early in the morning and he didn't have any lights on his bike. Oh, I know. It's he was what 48? Yeah, that's no age. It's super tragic, man. Tragic. Now, Gary, if I could start with you, Paul is a legend in the arcades, both as a brilliant player and a tough street fighter. How are you going to cope against them? Well, for years, everybody's been hearing about Mike Tyson, but nobody knows about Paul, but I have. <laughs> I'm prepared for him. Okay, Paul, Gary's record is very impressive. 36 fights, 35 wins, 32 of which have been knockouts. You must be trembling. No, really? He might be champ in the ring, but he's not champ in the arcade. I'm the champ. Uh, but uh, Paul is a tough player and he's a street fighter. Uh, and Gary compares Paul to Mike Tyson, uh, with Paul saying Gary is the champion of the ring, but he's the champion of this game. A lot of trash talking from our boy Paul Turner here. He's better at the trash talking than Gary Mason. I mean, Gary Mason sadly no longer with us. But man, you want to talk about injuries from concussions? He's not the greatest at cutting promos. No, in, in a wrestling sense, no. He does have this whole aura about him, which is that. This is what my career's come to now. This this is what my career is from this point on. I'm not boxing anymore. This is what I'm doing. I'm waiting for Frank Bruno to give up his widow twanky, and then that's where I'm heading. <laughs> okay, but we look like we've got a bit of a grudge match here. If you want to see if the tough arcade street fighter topped with the polished professional slugger, join us after the break. Right guard with double protection. It's one less thing to worry about. Once you start playing Sonic the Hedgehog, everything else seems a little bit slow. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, boy. see rough, tough, arcade street fighter Paul Turner take on the Polish professional punches of Gary Mason. It's a punch-up everybody's been waiting for, so let's call up Paul Turner to take the first punches. Uh, we come back from the break, and Tim Boone from CBG is the guest commentator, and he said that he's seen Paul in training, and he's good, but you shouldn't bet against Gary Mason. But Dominic Diamond thinks that Paul Turner's got this one. You've got to bet on the best. They feel feels like they are having a bit of a wager here. That like there's some there's some uh, lunch money, <laughs> there's some lunch money on the table here. A little bit of backroom uh, backroom betting. Um, so, I mean, there's very little to talk about the, the the game here because it is just sort of like you know punching the pad and, and a score comes up. But as you were sort of saying, like we were just before we came back from that break, that it's very interesting to see how the two of these people approach this game. Yes, Paul has spent a lot of time playing this game. He is the champion of this game, and he does have a strong punch. But a lot of these games rely on knowing exactly where to hit the pad to maximize how the sensors read it. And also, you want to follow through with your punch. You you don't want to jab. You want to keep a consistent sense of motion and force which is very different to how a boxer would approach it as we discover yes uh, because paul smashes the first one with 123 his second one is 103 and then 106 he did 124 to break it so he gets a total of 332 but all three punches were the same punch yeah they were the same punch they were all aiming for the same bit of the pad which was the lower half of the pad um i'd say the bottom third of yeah. the pad dead center so essentially hitting it as close to the bar as possible the vertical bar that holds it up yeah 
And it's a respectable score. Does it destroy the asteroid? No, but also, as is pointed out multiple times, this isn't just them playing the game. This is the game on its hardest setting. Yeah. I guess it either means the thresholds for the game are set higher or maybe the pad itself has increased resistance. Don't know, but those those are the variable factors that could be at play. But whereas Gary steps up uh, and Tim Boone says that he is going to explore different punches with this. And Gary does. His first one is like a jab, and then he tries a straight right. And a straight right is way more effective. And then he needs a big punch for his final one. He gets 105, then 107, and 119. And unfortunately, if you're not very good at maths, like me, I didn't realize how close this was until the end when they racked up and it's like, oh, Paul beat him by one point. It was. It was super close. And I think if he'd not spent the time exploring, he would have totally would Paul have won. into the ground. Absolutely would have won. It did make me wonder how much did they get both to practice with this game beforehand because you'd have thought he'd have done the exploration in a training session in a training session or just trying it out and it's a just training session <laughs> just, just practicing the game before yeah, well, yeah. no, that would be a training session it would, yeah. it, it would in the in the context of this game and paul maintains his title commiserations gary you had a lovely combination of punches but it wasn't quite enough on the day no it looks as if losing is becoming a habit for me these days <laughs> <laughs> if i could go on to the winner paul I mean, that was stunning. It was, I just done it. It was just on the spur of the moment that I had to beat him. Okay, got, now... Got to remain a champ. Now, you've beaten Gary on the game. Can we see a match in the ring between the two of you? There'll be a rematch. He knows where to find me. Any arcade, any day. I'm still the champ, and that's where I want to stay. <laughs> and what have you got to say to that, Gary? Well, I'll be scaring all the arcades during my lunch hour looking for Paul Turner. <laughs> okay, we'll look forward to the rematch. Meanwhile, Paul, you have won the prize that every fighter dreams of, our special golden Games Master joystick. Gary, that's when he has the, the heartbreaking line of saying that losing has become a habit for him these days. Paul just goes, I've just done it. That's his, that was his winning tactic was, i just done it. I had to do it. I had to stay the champ. <laughs> yeah. And Dominic's like, he's trying to get like blood to be drawn here. He's just like, are we going to get a rematch in the boxing ring? Are you going to tear each other apart? Paul says that Gary can find him around any arcade across the country. I'm the champ. And Gary says, well, maybe I'll scour the arcades on my lunch break to try and find you. And then I was thought... Oh, he's got lunch breaks now. The one bit that struck me as odd in this one, and again, it comes back to the concept of doing a promo, is he does go, I'll be scouring the arcades on my lunch break looking for Paul Turner. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case you thought he might be looking for like Paul Daniels yeah. or another Paul. Uh, so Paul wins his golden joystick. Dominic Diamond says that he'll show Gary the... An alley shuffle or two in the car park. Alley shuffle in the car park later on. Wank joke. Well, I was going to ask, is that a wank joke? Because I did Google on my work machine, <laughs> alley shuffle. Nothing came up. And then I, I typed in... Ali Shuffle, Scotland. <laughs> Maybe it was some Scottish dialect that I didn't pick up I, on. I think it was just going for an entendre because, you know, five-knuckle shuffle. Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. You know, maybe we were seeing the origins of dogging there. Who knows? Who knows? I think I was being... I Because we'd had so little dick jokes in this, I went far too highbrow thinking, like, maybe he's just making a very nice Scottish colloquialism. <laughs> but mm, no, no, no. He's definitely making a wanking joke. Hello, Games Master. Welcome to my kingdom. I am delighted to see you. And what have you got to ask me? After hours of playing on level three of Strider, I cannot get past the closing rules section without hearing you getting squashed. Can you help me? Indeed I can, young man. Now listen, 
Instead of trying to climb up one side of the wall, you should jump from side to side. You will find that your upward progress accelerates and you should have no trouble reaching the summit before the walls meet. Cheers, mate. Bye. Uh, well, let's head on into the consultation zone with the Games Master. Up first, a kid cannot be level three of Strider, where you essentially got to keep climbing up this wall. And this kid is just climbing up straight. And Games Master tells him, no, 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 you jump from side to side and you end up going much faster, you get to the top. And the had, had this kid ever played Strider? Because that <laughs> jump that Strider does is kind of instrumental to the entire freaking game. Yeah. <laughs> I'm amazed he made it this far without doing that kind of jumping from side to side thing. Well, I like his reaction to it when he just says in these words, cheers, mate, bye. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes me think that he was actually being told the solution by some like intern <laughs> with a clipboard. He's just, or like probably only a few years older than him. And he's just like, oh, cheers, mate. Cheers, mate, bye. Bye. Hello, Games Master. Hello, and nice to see you. Now, what can I do for you? I heard in Super Mario Bros. 3 there's a secret whistle in the first world which enables you to warp into a later level. I don't know where it is. Do you have any idea? Do I know where it is? Oh, the audacity of youth. Of course I do. The whistle is on level three of the first world. But bear with me, because finding it is a little complicated. You will need to jump on top of the fifth block of the level, a white one, then squat for five seconds. You will then fall behind the background scenery. Once there, go to the end of the stage, and you will enter a house where the first whistle is kept. Thanks a lot. So our second game is Super Mario Bros. 3, which we saw last week. And it's the secret whistle that we were talking about in that in last week's podcast, where you've got to get onto a block and you duck down for five seconds and then you fall through to sort of like the background area of it because Super Mario Bros. 3 is a play. Mm. And then you run through and you get to it, you're in behind the board and you get the secret warp whistle. Yeah. I've got a controversial statement about this particular entry into consultation zone. <gasps> I think this girl was a plant. Oh, no, 100%. I think because, it was a plant, man, yeah. she's acting. <laughs> she's like going Calculon, Futurama, Shatner-ish. She is just, she she is kind of like hitting her looks and like yeah. tilting her head. Yes. Yes, I'm interested. Because there's a moment when she says, like, I'm trying to find this thing. Do you know where it is? And Games Master was like, of course I know where it is. The audacity to ask me if I know where it is. Petulant child. <laughs> Cuts back to her <laughs> reacting to Games Master shutting her down. Uh, but yeah, you got to get there, duck through, and you get through to, to find that warp whistle. So it's, it's one I know quite well because I played Mario 3 a lot when I was at university. And I used to love just going through and getting all three warp whistles, essentially just gets right through to the world, to world 8. So I know this one pretty well. Yeah. In modern terms, this is quite an obvious one. But back then, again, without actual interactive video to watch just following a screen grab in a magazine would make this a lot harder yeah. than watching it and going oh okay i get it now yeah, yeah. next up please and hurry around down hello games master in robocop how do i kill the two people at the end of level two good question good question indeed actually contrary to popular belief you don't have to kill both of these men as one of them is actually the mayor being held hostage you need to select the machine gun, and then, whenever the mayor in front ducks down, shoot the man behind. If you shoot him three times, he'll release the mayor and come charging towards you. When this happens, punch him, and he will eventually die. All right, thanks. Not at all. But this last one is my favorite, because this little kid comes in and he said, I'm having trouble with Robocop. I can't kill the two baddies at the end of level two. <laughs> and Games Master corrects him and says, contrary to popular opinion, 
basically your opinion, <laughs> you psychopath. You only have to kill one of them. One of them is the bad guy. The other one is the mayor being held hostage that you're trying to save. Who knew the solution to rescuing the hostage was don't shoot the hostage. So, yeah, so the solution is whenever the mayor ducks, then you shoot the bad guy. Although, weirdly, when the mayor runs away, the solution after that is not to just repeatedly shoot the bad guy, which is what Robocop would actually do, but to punch him. Yeah, just punch him dead hard. (laughs) I mean, punches from Robocop, they would hurt, but also it would be much easier just to shoot him some more. Yeah, or you get a little spike thing out from a Robocop hand and then you punch him. Yeah, yeah. You're down in one after that. That is, that's a brain (laughs) spike right there. Did you spot the spinning butt plug this time? I did, yes. After you mentioning it, I was like, oh yeah, that does look like a spinning butt plug. (laughs) Inappropriately appearing many, many times. (laughs) And also, we are still getting lots of blue screens. Yeah, it must be missing graphics. They they must have just run out of time or money. I think we're going to see this until the end of Series 1. By Series 2, I'd imagine that's going to be fixed up, but I think Series 1, it's going to be blue screen a lot. Hmm. Gamesmaster says that he enjoys his time being Agony Uncle in the consultation zone, and we get our final challenge, so let's head on over to Gamesmaster and find out what it is. My final challenge tonight is on lemmings. The lemming is an exasperating breed of rodent that seems hell-bent on committing suicide. You're charged with delivering a certain percentage of these creatures to safety by guiding them through a tricky obstacle course. But the only way you can do this, I'm sorry to say, is by blowing up some of the lemmings to make holes that the others can fall through. Once a lemming has been programmed to explode, it takes five seconds to self-destruct. Perfect time is therefore required to ensure that the lemmings explode over the sections of the puzzle where there's no furnace. The slightest slip up will signal a mass in enemy's cremation. You have two minutes to save 90% of the lemmings. A race of retarded rodents is depending on you. I bloody love lemmings. Our third challenge is lemmings, and this game is still so highly regarded. Oh, that's great. What a game. I saw games like this on the Amiga. I saw games like The Last Samurai that we mentioned earlier. And I'm just like, I'm never going to get to play games like that on my Amstrad CPC 464. But you know what? I got Lemmings and it was just as good. Oh, it's so... But it's, Am- it's a- say, Amstrad Action, this was their second highest rated game ever. 97%. But it's all in the simplicity. Like The graphics are dirt simple for the game. The Lemmings are just, you know, block sprites... Here is blue, here's a bit of skin colour, green hair. That's all you need. The, the, the graphics originally were actually kind of red-haired and slightly different tones, and they were just sprites designed for another game that was being worked on, and they had that kind of loping animation loop. Yeah. And the colour palette got shifted, and they were called lemmings. There is one moment in the challenge, however, issued by Games Master, which has not aged that well. It really hasn't, has it? Yes, that, that I almost feel like was a little bit of Patrick Moore going on the um, uh, the improv route because I can't even imagine then that someone on Channel 4 for 6.30 would have approved the phrase retarded rodents. Yeah, my note here is, what a different time. <laughs> <laughs> what a different time indeed. And this is not an easy challenge either because he's got to get 90% of the lemmings through and he's got two minutes, but the time really isn't a factor for this challenge. But it is a level in which if you make one mistake, you're knackered. 
because you've got to drop them through three levels or four levels, I think. Four levels. And you've got to use the exploding lemming to do it. So instantly, you're already killing four of, four of your lemmings. So you have got to get your timings right four times round, and you're through. If you get those four times right, you're in for a winner. But if you don't, game over. Because for those of you that haven't played lemmings, it's not just a case of you click on a lemming and it explodes. You click on a lemming and there's a five second countdown. These lemmings are always walking. So you really, really have to get your rhythm with this game and understand the loping pace of the lemmings, how they react to dropping, how that affects the walking, because you have to get the loping pace of the lemmings down so your timing is absolutely spot on. I don't think I could do this level now in one take. Oh, absolutely not. I don't think I could do either. Now, Lemmings is a hugely successful game and this is an incredibly tough challenge. So we tried to find one of the best Lemmings players in the country and we found him in Leicester. Please give a succulent Games Master welcome to Robert Clark. Yeah! Games Master Robert. Hi Dominic, it's nice to be here. Now Robert, we've said you're one of the best Lemmings players in the country. How long did it take you to complete all 120 levels? Oh, about six weeks. Six weeks? Yes. Now unfortunately we only told you you were doing this particular level five minutes ago. What was your reaction? Uh, I was pretty shocked. Do you think you can clock it? Uh, I'll go. Okay then, if you'd like to go and sit yourself down in a pine hot seat, we'll get ready to play the game. Okay. Um, Dominic Diamond says that Lemmings is a huge game and this is a tough challenge. So they bring out Robert Clark from Leicester saying that he's one of the best Lemmings players in the country. I don't know how that's a verifiable claim, but apparently he defeated the entire game in six weeks, which I'm fairly impressed by. And I thought he was wearing aviator sunglasses at first. Turns out it's just very big 1990s specs. And they, I was like, they're lovely specs. <laughs> they they are formidable glasses. <laughs> they are they're very thick glasses. Let let's just not we we, we made that promise in the first episode. We're, we're not, not gonna punch punching, down. We're not punching down. But by God they're thick glasses. <laughs> That's not to say anything negative about him because also no. he had really stylishly done hair. Oh, he totally. Was, yeah. This guy looked like the bee's knees. That's why I thought at first he was wearing aviators. I was like, this cool cat is wearing sunglasses indoors. He may actually have bee's knees, because I don't know if you noticed, but when he was going up to sit in the chair, he nearly stacked it climbing <laughs> the step. And I'm like, Whoa, careful, careful how you go. So they only told him that he was doing this level five minutes ago, and he's like, yeah, I suppose I'll give it a go. <laughs> what a bunch of arseholes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you think you're all that? Well, here's this level. Yeah, it's a dead hard one. See how good you are now, Clark. How'd you like them apples? <laughs> Uh, Tom Watson from Renegade is in the booth with us once again and he points out as we've mentioned uh, throughout this podcast this is a right first time level he can only waste six lemmings in order to beat the stage so as we said at the start of this if you've got to blow up four of them to even get through that means you can't you've got two lemmings to spare it's a brutal brutal level to put someone up to even with preparation yeah makes you wonder what levels was he practicing with an easy one, I imagine. <laughs> because he, like, he gets through the first two bits really fine to the point where he's got very, very good timing. He's set off his first two lemmings counting down almost within a second of each other because he knows, boom, that one, then boom, that one. And it's just, it's magnificent. It's magic. It is. It's like this This is, this, this kid is wonder kid. And he is going to absolutely nail this, but his timing is slightly off on the third one. And... Oh. We lose a fair bunch of our lemmings into the flames. He recovers quickly by blowing up an escape route for them, but it's just too little too late. And you're watching this 
And I just felt this pang of dread while we were going like, oh, this is a failure. And we're just watching him now slowly realize that he's not going to complete this task because we have to sit there and watch all of those lemmings go through, the remaining ones left. And it is, oh, it's tough. The last 45 seconds is essentially all of us, including Dominic, including the, you know, the audience and everyone else just watching these little green haired creatures walk to their eventual fate. It's, it both is and isn't gripping television. <laughs> that is a perfect way to describe it. <laughs> it's high octane paint drying. It's... <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, uh, he only gets 87% of his lemmings through, so he loses by 4% of his target. His target I think was, it's like two lemmings. Yeah. Two lemmings. He was out by two. It. Oh, it was such a shame for him. Our first Games Master loser. And our first sad organ flourish. <laughs> <laughs> Robert, you were one or two lemmings away from that. I was very close. Tell us, what went wrong? Well, um, the third brummer uh, just turned in the wrong place and went to part, you know, mm -hmm. it's terrible. Right, now I know that you've cocked the whole game, but is that one of the tougher levels? Uh, it is pretty tough, yeah. Timing's critical, otherwise you're dead in the start room. Right, well, our commiserations once again, Rob, but you supplied us with that. A lot of, um, a lot of sparkly fun anyway. Um, and he, he fully admits, he said, I mistimed the third bomber, and it's one of the tougher levels. Um, but D uh, Diamond Diamond says that he brought sparkly fun to uh, to the proceedings, which I felt was a dig at the poor <laughs> interview that this lad was. He was not used to being on camera, as most kids wouldn't be. Barry is one of the exceptions that started this show. Yep. This kid and is our the actor norm. friend who uh, can't play Mario Three. Apparently, <laughs> can act, can't play Mario Three. <laughs> well, acting, hmm. yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, Robert Clark does not get a golden joystick. So, with that exhilarating but ultimately fruitless effort, tonight's show comes to an end. Well, it's smoking jacket and steaming jasmine time. We'll see you in seven days for another Games Master. Good night. But Dominic Diamond does say that it was an exhilarating, but ultimately fruitless effort. I'm like, Dominic Diamond, kick the man while he's down. He just lost on national television. He was told to tone down the dick jokes by the gallery, and he's now taking it out on the contestants. <laughs> he's just like, I'm not allowed to make knob gags anymore. The knives are out. <laughs> but it's time for a smoking jacket and a steaming jasmine tea. I'll see you in seven days. Who is steaming jasmine? Do we know her? <laughs> <laughs> so that is episode two of the show. I, um... I thought it was an interesting show. It felt very different from the first one in that it felt like they had raised the stakes of the challenges with our boy Barry coming out and saying, like, I'm going to do 160 when there's only 163 available. A decent-ish celebrity challenge, though not as good as the one with John Fashnew last week, and a very, very tough Lemmings challenge. I actually did enjoy it, though. I actually, I had a lot of fun with this one. Probably not as much as I did with episode one because I didn't really get on with the celebrity challenge, but I did enjoy the two book-ending ones. I think I would have flipped the first and the last challenges around. Yeah, that's a good shout, yeah. I think I would have ended with Barry because it actually became diminishing returns over the episode. We st it started with a fast-paced game, 
and then we had the slightly weird celebrity challenge which because they were just taking their three shots and then standing to one side there wasn't much in the way of tension if they'd be if they'd had two machines and taken a punch each yes. that would have been kind of cool that would yeah, have racked it up totally and then we had Lemmings, which, an amazing game, a tough game, a brilliant game, a game I want to now start playing, but it's not gripping television. Mm. Not not in a traditional sense, not in a, a finishing with a finale. I don't think we needed to finish with a winner. I think we needed to finish with something exciting. And I think if you'd put Lemmings at the beginning, then the Celebrity Challenge, then Sonic, it would have played out slightly more satisfactorily. I think that's a, a fair comment. Um, what do you think of the scoring it this week? I think it's going to be a lower score, partly because, bar the Sonic, I didn't think the challenges were as good. They weren't as good television. And if we are judging this on it being a television show, that is how we should judge it, not on the games that it's actually portraying. I like the review section. I think I like the review section slightly more. Hmm. The feature section, I did not. No. <laughs> and also, I'll be honest, the stupid plant in the consultation zone that that niggles at me because i'm like really second episode and we're already getting plants so i'm gonna lowball it i'm gonna give it 69 oh 69 dude that's uh, uh <laughs> that's a tough break for it and, and i do hear what you're saying i think i enjoyed the toughness i enjoyed like, almost like the leveling up of the show Going from episode one to episode two, where it felt like we're going to add some more difficulties to this challenge. I'm only talking about the book-ending ones. The, the celebrity one felt like this is a very weird comparison. First season of The Muppets, because the first season of The Muppets, when it was a variety show, and they would have like it's guest celebrity, and they would bring out some Olympian that had competed 20 years ago, and you're like, I have no idea who that person is. That's kind of what I feel. Some of these celebrity challenges on Games Master, and that was one of these people was just like, it's celebrity ballroom dancer, blah blah blah, and you're like, oh, this isn't Mark Hamill. Um, and so, I, I, so the celebrity challenge didn't do much for me, but I kind of, I kind of like the the Lemmings and the Sonic challenge. So I'm going to go higher, not massively higher. I'm going to go for seventy six percent on this one. That seems fair. It, it's not a blowaway episode. No, the first episode was so strong, and it needed to be. I think it needed to be big, ballsy, lots of dick jokes apparently, and also lots of people winning challenges that looked good visually and all the challenges did because we have mario mario very well known we had uh, the football challenge it was actually a really exciting two minutes of, of football yeah probably more exciting than most of the matches that fashion was in <laughs> and then we ended with mad dog mccree which was a very unusual game because it's not something a lot of us would have seen unless we had big arcades near us this week was perhaps a little bit more down to earth sonic that's fairly standard at the time. Lemmings was a massive hit, but also available for a lot of different platforms yeah, on the totally. home, com home computing spectrum, and uh, including the spectrum. <laughs> and then you had Sonic Blast Man. Sonic Blast Man, which was, as we said, it was more a carny sideshow than yeah. an actual game. Dominic was great throughout. Uh, Patrick Moore was great as the games master throughout, having a, a bit more fun with it, I think, as well. I like that interaction with the plant. That's why I don't think the plant bothers me as much, because I did like the, how dare you question my intelligence. <laughs> the audacity. <laughs> the audacity of it. Yeah. But that, I'm afraid, is all we've got time for on this edition of the Under Consultation podcast. Ash and I are going to go put on our smoking jackets and have uh, a nice time with Steaming Jasmine. We don't know who she is yet, but apparently she's a lovely person to hang out with. Apparently so. Dominic speaks very highly of her. Uh, but we will see you in seven days. Thank you.
Now for that information about the Under Consultation Club. You can follow us on Twitter at UnderConsolePod, and you can send your thoughts on each episode to feedback at underconsultation.com. You can also follow your hosts on Twitter at ThisIsLukeOwen and at AshVersus. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a subscribe and a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.